Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. to another episode of Movie House Memories, the podcast where we look back and review the films that we think are the most important films in cinema history. I'm Patrick, and with me this month are three people who spent a large portion of their lives in darkened movie theaters. First, he's our resident lumberjack and the man who sees symbolism in his cornflakes. He's one of the co-hosts of Criterion Critics and Lunchtime Movie Review Podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network, and he also hosts his own podcast review show on YouTube, viewing and reviewing which is actually a video uh, show which is much better than you know just audio with us bobby taylor and i have my boutonniere on just for this occasion uh also with us uh, she has appeared as one of the co-hosts of the sunday seconds with the duke the john wayne retrospective podcast as well as the golden age of the silver screen podcast here on the mhn podcast network the sole female voice of the show and my podcast better half Lori flores hello Finally, finally with us is he's one of the co-hosts of Male Bonding, the James Bond retrospective podcast here on the MHN Podcast Network. You can follow him on Twitter at Haybucker, Matt Palmer. Oh, hold on here now. You want me to pull my trousers down? <laughs> I, was, I, was I think it was up, Jimmy. wasn't it? <laughs> oh, was it? Okay, good. I was hoping Jimmy would make it tonight. I'm so happy. Well, of course, Jimmy's going to be here. All right. Welcome, everyone. And before we get started with our film review for this month, we'd like to thank all the returning listeners to the show and welcome all new listeners to Movie House Memories. Thanks for downloading us and giving us a try. We appreciate your time and attention and hope you keep on listening and following us on Pinterest or Twitter at MH Memories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourselves informed about our occasional written film reviews, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, you can now subscribe to our account on YouTube, where we're now releasing our podcasts exclusively. Once there, if you subscribe to our account and ring the notifications bell, you'll get updates when we post new material, as well as have the opportunity to give us a like or a dislike, or even a comment about either our opinions, the film that we're reviewing, or suggestions for films that you think should be in the top 100 films of all time. And whether you're a frequent listener or a brand new fan of our show, we hope that you take the time after you're done listening and provide us with additional feedback over on our website. Uh, Once you visit our website at moviehousememories.com, you can leave a comment about either our podcasts, our opinions, or the film that we're reviewing. Additionally, you can leave your star review rating of the film that we have discussed so that we can get a consensus rating from the MHN Podcast Network community. As always, we'd love to hear positive feedback, but we appreciate anything anyone has to say about any of our little shows now with the horrible business out of the way let's get on to Lori's next pick for one of the greatest films of all time 1940s the shop around the corner with jimmy stewart and margaret sullivan and Lori, do you have a summary for us 
I have a summary. Can you tell me a story? Okay, the shop around the corner, made in 1940. Alfred Krolik, played by Jimmy Stewart, and Clara Novak, played by Margaret Sullivan, have fallen in love with each other through letters, although they have never laid eyes on each other. Krolik is a successful sales clerk at a small shop in Budapest. Coincidentally, Miss Novak is hired at the same shop. The epistolary lovers unknowingly meet and do not hit it off in person. They really annoy each other. Krolik is also struggling in his relationship with his boss, store owner Mr. Modicek. Until recently, they have enjoyed a strong, trusting relationship. There had even been talk of giving Krolik more responsibility. However, Mr. Modicek has become distanced and at times outright hostile toward Krolik. As the Christmas shopping season progresses... The anonymous admirers plan to finally meet face-to-face at a small cafe. The long-anticipated meeting is threatened when Mr. Modicek demands all of the employees stay late to decorate the front window the night of the rendezvous. It turns out that Mr. Modicek suspects his wife of having an affair with with Krolik. This is the reason for the change in his behavior. He has hired a private investigator to confirm his suspicions. When the PI calls, he releases the employees from the window decorating, but not before terminating Krolik's employment. He provides the shocked clerk with severance pay and a glowing reference letter. An eager Clara darts out of the shop to get to her appointment. The defeated Krolik is not as anxious for the meeting. He brings a friend co-worker along for support. He stands outside and asks his friend to spy his pen pal. His friend spots Clara anxiously waiting at a table with a designated book and flower and informs Krolik. Krolik is taken aback but enters the cafe to engage Clara in conversation. Clara is dismissive as usual, insisting he leave her to her plans. Frustrated and insulted, Krolik chooses not to share his discovery with Clara. Meanwhile, back at the shop, Mr. Modicek has been informed by the investigator that Mrs. Modicek has indeed been unfaithful, but with a different employee. Her affair has been with Mr. Vodish. Mr. Modicek attempts suicide with a gun, but is thankfully thwarted by Pepe, the delivery boy. Krolik visits the recovering Mr. Modicek in the hospital. They reconcile, and Mr. Modicek offers Krolik a promotion to store manager. The next morning, his co-workers are happy and relieved to see Krolik. Clara doesn't believe Krolik at first when he shares the news of his change of position. She is in a sour mood due to being stood up the night before. She insults Krolik some more before fainting at the realization that he is speaking the truth. The following day, Clara calls in sick due to a broken heart. Krolik checks on her at home and playfully taunts her a bit. When a letter from her pen pal is brought in, her spirits quickly recover. Krolik seems to enjoy watching her as she reads his letter. Back at work on Christmas Eve, Clara appears to be softening toward Krolik. She even confesses to him that she found herself attracted to him, and that was why she badgered him relentlessly. Krolik finally musters the courage to admit that he is her mystery man, and they share a sweet kiss. And that is the shop around the corner. All right. Films are influenced by the times that they're made in. And we look back at some of the big news events in Lori Flores's Headlines of the Time.
the year was 1940. Captain America, Bugs Bunny, Daisy Duck, and Woody Woodpecker made their public debut. Booker T. Washington became the first African-American to be featured on a U.S. postage stamp. Winston Churchill became British Prime Minister after the resignation of Neville Chamberlain. In his first address, he stated, I have nothing to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. The very first McDonald's restaurant opened in San Bernardino, California. The Soviet Union occupied Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. The world was falling falling apart as Hitler invaded Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, France, and Luxembourg. The Selective Service and Training Act of 1940 established the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. Films released in 1940 included Pinocchio, Fantasia, which actually was a box office failure at the time, The Philadelphia Story, The Great Dictator, Rebecca, Boomtown, Strike Up the Band, and the film we will review today, The Shop Around the Corner. And that's a look at 1940. All right, we usually start by talking about the casting of the film, and this is Lori's pick, so we'll have Lori start with talking about one of our all-time favorites, James Stewart, playing Alfred Krolik. Oh, how I love Jimmy. I've, I've never seen a sour note from him. And he's just he's just so charming. And I think this is definitely one of his most charming roles. When, when uh, Mr. Matichek fires him, just how his his entire posture and, and just... He's such a he's such a great actor, and he and he's so understated in in what he conveys. And he's 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 one of the all time greats. I will agree with Laurie. I love Jimmy Stewart. He's always been one of my all time faves. And in this film, I think he's pretty flawless as far as the Crawlick character. I, and I agree with Laurie in stating that the the moment that he finds out that he is no longer employed was uh, that was an that had to be an him acting it, it wasn't something that you can just oh yeah no big deal i'm not I, i'm not employed anymore oh well he, you could see it on his face so i really enjoyed him in this film a lot and i don't see anybody else from that era playing that role as well as he did lots of them could have done it i just think he was the perfect pick he, he's good he's always good you could tell he had a little trouble remembering his lines in this one he had that that trademark stutter but he he's just so likable. You, you always like Laurie. I've never I've never not liked him in something, and he he was good in this. It's not one of his better roles, I'd say, but he was he was very serviceable as the romantic lead. I mean, we all love Jimmy Stewart, and I do as well. I, I kind of agree that there's not really a bad role by him. I really enjoy him, seeing him on the screen. I will somewhat agree that to this to this role to me is one more of very mundane for him uh, but it's not it's not a bad role it's just it, there's not a lot about the, there's not much for him to do in this film it's not he's not really called to stretch uh, the best scene i agree is the termination scene and his you know his physical his uh physical acting more so than what he's actually saying is he's doing such a great job but that's about all he, he was called on to do, really do in this film. Uh, and so I, 
I, I, I'm probably telegraphing my punch, but it's like, it's, it's a nice little film and I can understand why it's been remade and arguably possibly remade better, but it, it was, uh, he, he is good in it. But Bobby, what about the female lead, Margaret Sullivan playing Clara Novak? I hate going first on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I did not like her at all in this film. She was annoying throughout the whole thing. They made her out to be this gloriously gorgeous object of Jimmy Stewart's character, which I completely disagree with. Uh, and I even went through actresses from the era that could have and should have been better options for for the character. And I came up with a, a short list of available actresses would have been Jean Arthur, Joan Blondell, Jennifer Jones, and Barbara Stanwyck. Any of those four would have done a better job, would have been prettier, which would have which would have fit the character, would de- definitely not have been as bitchy as she was. And I, I think that was the thing that I really didn't like about her. And and I know in real life she was a nightmare as a person. So and had a really rough life because of it. So she just seemed came across as entitled as some Somebody that just demanded attention that she didn't deserve, and I do not believe that she she was well cast for this role. Well, I agree with everything Bobby said. I, I think my biggest hang up is that she wasn't pretty enough, and this wow. is the first time I saw That's this movie. That's going to sound very chauvinistic that the two the two first men to speak are both saying she wasn't pretty enough for the role. Yeah, yeah, but they made a point of saying that she was beautiful. They they made a specific point. Uh, the uh, Bre- uh, the Pirovich character, while he was looking in uh, on their blind date, he was, oh, she's gorgeous. Well, yes, of course she's going to be gorgeous. And she was not. That was just my – that's my perspective as – and yeah, maybe it's chauvinistic, but – I mean, it, I, I'm not I'm not great looking myself and I'm OK with women t- saying that same thing. So I'm OK with it. <laughs> it may sound chauvinistic, but it's also objectively true in this instance. So I, I think we can get away with it. I when when the first scene when she came on, I didn't think she was the love interest when she she came in the movie. I was like, oh, it's just some other character looking for a job and the love interest must be coming just because she didn't she didn't look looked the part and yeah i didn't i didn't particularly enjoy her take on the character either i think she's pretty i agree the character was hard i think she was uh misunderstood (laughs) she's very combative with 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 jimmy stewart and and just i know that's hard to take and as i was watching it i didn't remember her being quite that um sour as she was but i i think she did a a good job i don't think that she was the only person that could have played that role and and i would agree that with um some of the names that bobby brought up that they would be good at the role but but i thought she was i thought she was good well i'll add my chauvinism to it yeah she i i much like matt it's been a long i hadn't seen this in a long time and i'd forgotten it most of it. I remember you've got mail much better. Uh, I've seen that more times. I think I saw this once before you got mail came out. Uh, and that's the only time I've ever seen it. I forgot she was the lead. I thought I forgot she was the the woman he falls in love with. And I was like, oh, 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 that's her. Wow. Well, I hate her. I hate her character. 
I don't want Jimmy Stewart to end up with her because she's kind of mean. I mean, she's, she's kind of stuck up and I don't really appreciate her character. I know there's an, she has an intelligence that connects with Jimmy Stewart, but I just did not like Jimmy Stewart ultimately ending up with that character. I thought he could do better. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is so likable her and her character. And I want to stress her character in real life. Apparently she was really unlikable, but her character to me just was not likable. And because I didn't like her, I did not find her very attractive and didn't want her to end up with obviously uh Krawlick at the end of the film. Now as, as an actress, I've, you know, I read after the fact and I, and I read all this after I'd seen the movie where basically she was a total pain in the ass to work with on the set although she had a good working relationship with Jimmy Stewart and he was willing to work with her. And that's one of the reasons that she was able to get cast in the film is that he had, he was able to tolerate or at least not draw as much venom from her as most other people. But that was kind of disappointing because I think that might've led to kind of the lack of chemistry is that she, she doesn't seem to connect with anybody else in the film. And that might be because there was no chemistry between the actors and that would be her fault uh, for just not building any kind of uh, rapport with them. Kind of made it make sense that they would fall in love through letters. Yeah, because that's the only way it would work. <laughs> All right, what about Frank Morgan playing Hugo Matuchek? Matuchek, is that how you pronounce it, Laurie? I thought it was Matuchek, but Matuchek. I, it is it, it's been that's a right. couple weeks yeah, since been, I watched it. Yeah, it's Matuchek. You're right. So, uh, Matt, what about Mr. Matuchek? He's good. He's delightful. He, you know, very much the kind of old guard style of of acting. I think that's something that that you you just it's pleasant, but it's not necessarily going to take you to another place. But he, he he did a fine job. I think he really had a feel for the tone of the movie, and and fit in well. <laughs> okay. I was looking for the ruby slippers, <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, I thought he was good. I, I think that that's a not an easy role because he has to be likable yet, you know, he's not very nice to Jimmy Stewart's character. And also he, he I really could see the evolution of his character and, and the pain of, of his character. So I like that. I thought he, I thought he did a, a good job. I really liked him and he is only one year removed from Wizard of Oz, which was difficult for me to see that. I mean, he, he was the Wizard of Oz, <laughs> the, the, the great Oz. Uh, so that was a little hard to kind of take him out of one movie and put him into an immediate movie after without seeing this, uh, some residual, but I really liked him. I thought he was, he had a, uh, one of the more difficult roles because the, the film kind of, lived and died by how he reacted to everybody in his shop, not just the two love interests, but all of the, the subordinate characters. And I really enjoyed his, the relationship that he had or lack thereof between he and Pirovich, who was always had no backbone when he was around Mr. Matichek. And then you've got Pepe who was just wonderful as this, you know, Pepe, <laughs> he was, he lived up to his name and he was, he became Mr. Matichek's savior. So, I mean, I really enjoyed that the dynamic of the shop itself based on how Mr. Matichek came and went from each scene. And so I, I think he was a very much a strength of this film. Not the strength, but he was a, a, a big part of it. 
you know, it, it's it's weird because th- there's this is the darkness. This is the drama of the film. Once again, I had not seen this in such a long time that I had forgotten most of the story beats. And then the infidelity of his wife, I was like, whoa, this suddenly got dark real, real quick. And this idea of, you think Jimmy Stewart's, you know, schlepping your wife? I mean, oh, my gosh, you know, that, that seemed to be a very uh, odd turn for it. And then the suicide attempt that follows immediately afterwards, I went, wow, this is not what I expected from a lighthearted 1940s Jimmy Stewart comedy, but it was, he, 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 he's able to thread that needle because he ultimately has the redemption towards the end where he's a much more pleasant and favorable character and recognizes all his employees as almost his true family. Obviously not the wife and the employee who was, you know, stooping, stooping her on the side, uh, but it's, you know, he, he seems to rec- recognize that and embrace them in the end, which gives a little bit of that Hollywood ending uh, for everybody to be one big happy family. Uh, even the connection of who wants to, who I'm going to take, uh, you know, this new employee out to dinner who I don't even know and start building that relationship with him at the very end of the film. All right, Bobby, what about symbolism and hidden meanings in this? I actually had a hard time with this, but I, I came up with two, but they're pretty weak. So forgive me on this. Uh, I have that the dress worn by Margaret Sullivan was that she personally bought off the rack for $1.98 for the character that the director – oh, my gosh. All of a sudden, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Oh, what is his name? Uh, Lupich. Uh, yes. Ernst, Ernst Lupich. He uh, made a point of – uh, keeping it out in the sun to uh, to look even more worn than it would have been honor, but it also symbolized the down to earth tone of the honorable and faithful shop workers who represented working class Hungary before the war, versus the well to do fancy clothing of the backstabbing but upwardly mobile Vadish. And then I also have uh, the smoking musical box sales scene in Clara's hands symbolizes Clara's ability to shift character for whatever moment arises. This dichotomy foreshadows her quick change at the moment of realization that Alfred professes his love from uh, from ambivalence to love. Uh, that was good. Yeah, there's not a it's it's pretty out there. There's nothing uh, subvert. Right. So. Um, but those were really good points that you brought up. I like the the um, the dress and the music box. Yeah, the dress thing uh, I, I didn't really notice watching that. So I think that was that was that was sharp, Bobby. No, that's that's pretty. That was pretty good. And Bobby, were you on Clooney Brown, the podcast? Uh, I was on. I I was on at least one, possibly two. <laughs> I think you're right. We did two, right? Yeah, we did two. We did the, the we did the Criterion, but this is the same director. And yes. And and I was watching that I was watching this I was going I was reminded of the Clooney Brown. There seemed to be a lot more a lot of similarities to this other than I like the Clooney Brown character and <laughs> much more than I like the female character in this, but it seemed to be almost a role reversal where I didn't like the male lead as much including Brown as I did. Uh, totally. Yeah. But see, that's, that's what I also stated was the, of the four names that I threw out as potential uh, replacements for Margaret Sullivan. One of them was Jennifer Jones who played Clooney Brown. She would have been a much more adorable, likable, energetic character to play off of Jimmy Stewart mm-hmm. that we, that we probably would have liked 
more. And I think she could have fit this role so much better. Easily. Yes, because yes. There, there's a similarity, I think, with what they were trying to accomplish with the the, uh, the Novak character in this and Clooney Brown, is that there's a little bit of flightiness and, and a little bit of ambition, but this kind of quest for I want to be in love and, and I want yes. to kind of see the world and, and experience things. All right, Matt, what about your moral universe? Sure. I usually struggle a little bit with the romance movies on uh, on that. I, I find similar messages in all of them. In this one, I, I, I thought it, we had an interesting portrayal of the boss man. And is it is it Matischek? Are we saying this? Matischek. Matischek. You know, he, he was just kind of the all-around good guy for the most part. He, he They noted that he employed more clerks than similar shops, reducing their workloads, seemed to pay him well. And and originally he kept that professional distance between them for the most part um, and kind of got grumpier and grumpier as he uh, realized one of them was stooping his wife. But even even he had kind of a a change of heart and and really wanted to to not only be co-workers but have these relationships with his co-workers kind of being portrayed as just all around the good boss. He, he was willing to pay people well. He was willing to promote people, uh, including Pepe. And, and, and it might have been perhaps he found that, that that relationship with Pepe is what saved him when he was trying to shoot himself. So I, I don't think it's necessarily the main message of the film. Uh, I think it's important to it. But, you know, looking at another romantic comedy, I, I think it's, it's uh, I think a lot of times you're looking at at the stuff at the periphery that really sets one of these apart from another. Yeah, I agree. I think that, like we were saying earlier about Mr. Matichek, I think uh, I think the film more or less rotates around him more so than it does the the love, uh, the the love story, because Mr. Matichek was a very fraternal type of relationship with all of his his employees. Uh, he was more father than he was employer in in a lot of cases, and it, uh, ultimately at the end he kind of proved that, especially with Pepe and Rudy. But what I really liked uh, was, or, or or what I should say, the the one thing that I would I would add to what Matt is st- saying though is that the Matt, Mrs. Matichek and Vadish, their their liaison was something that in 1940 I think was a little harder for for audiences to take and I think that was why Matt or uh, uh, Patrick you mentioned that it's a little darker I think that is something that in a light-hearted Ernest Lubitsch who is known for slapsticky type humor comedies that was a little bit of a, a dark change so I think that was something that we weren't quite expecting which I think ultimately had the right ending but I don't know if it was the right tone to take into a romantic comedy like this. Patrick, I think you hit on something earlier when we were talking about Matichek, that his employees were his family, especially because his, his wife, his own family was unfaithful. So it just kind of made me think that, that we, we can make family, you know, when, if you're not dealt the best family. <laughs> I don't, that's what I got. Well, I think what you're trying to say, Laurie, is at the end of the day, he saw more loyalty to his work family, his surrogate family, if you will, who that when loyalty he was from, yeah, yeah, that yeah. when he was down, 
when he was in the hospital, they all rallied to make sure that they had the best Christmas holiday season for him, for the benefit of him. And even though they didn't have to, they very likely were going to get paid the same no matter what. And that loyalty is is first portrayed by Krolik, who he fired. I mean, and has every reason not to help this man, but his affection for his boss, his loyalty to his boss, because he's the longest working employee there. I mean, that's that's mentioned in there is, you know, that 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 kind of morality of it, I thought was it was really kind of interesting. And Matt bringing up that, you know, the the love story is obviously what draws the attention, but it's not the the, the kind of the through line of the film. The love story has these intermittent portions of it, but it's the Matichek. Uh, and the boss and Krolik storyline that keeps going throughout, because that's what we're first introduced to at the very beginning of the film, kind of this tension and animosity to it. I think that's kind of the main storyline. And it's just got this dash of romance in there for a little for a, a little bit of flavor, if you will. I, I, I kind of agree with Matt that that's that's kind of the more uh, more important story in the film. And especially in light of the fact that it ends at Christmas time, probably the more inspirational story. And also how you treat your employees. Well, with an uh, iron fist. I mean, that's what you have to do. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jane's not here talking about the music. Music um, composed by Warner Heyman. Matt, I'll start with you because you're such a big uh, soundtrack lover. Uh, what did you think of the music in the film? You know, I, I don't remember noticing it. So it couldn't have been that bad. <laughs> I, um, I mean, I watched it you know, on the, on the big stereo. So it was, it was noticeable. And I don't remember being bothered by it, which as you guys always know, is the best compliment I can give. I'll give the same compliment that Matt just gave. And that's all. Yeah. The only music I remember is the music box. Music boxes. Yeah. I I don't remember. I think there was music coming in and music coming out, but there was very limited music. I mean, to, to the point that that's all I can distinctly remember is some sort of soundtrack pl- playing in and the opening credits. And then kind of as the, you know, the film wraps up and shows the end or whatever, but very, very limited. And I, I, I approach it from the different way. If I don't remember it, then it couldn't have been very good and, uh, or memorable to me. So that's kind of the approach I took from it. All right. Ending of the film, uh, once again in the shop. And if I have a complaint about this is this film is very claustrophobic. It's obviously from a stage play because it is primarily just one set. You have very little, uh, interactions outside the, the shop, but they're once again in the shop, Krolik finally reveals his identity to Novak and they kiss and live presumably happy, happily ever after. Bobby, what did you think of the ending of the film? Well, I actually watched this uh, long after I had seen uh, You've Got Mail many times, and I know we're going to talk about that in a a minute probably. But I I was actually shocked at how little of the love story was in this film until the very end. And I thought that they shoved so much into the love – it was almost like it was an afterthought. They got to the last – third of the film at the last, the last act and went, Hey, there's really a love story here. We got to bring them all together. And I thought that was really rushed. I don't believe that the, that 
I, I did like how Krolik watched Novak read her letter to to the this mysterious stranger. That was nice to see his reaction as she's reading it. But in the end, I thought that the ending was clunky. I, I don't believe for a second that this is going to be a happily ever after. I think this is a, a rushed uh, job of, like you said, claustrophobia. And as soon as they get into the real world, they're going to realize just how dull either one of them are and it won't last. So that would be my suggestion. I did like Mr. Matichek and how he ended with Rudy and had his growing up moment, but that was the best part of the film. Yeah. I mean, the, the pacing was a little weird to me. I was, I was looking at how much time was left on the movie before the scene where, you know, he was going to, uh, kind of, uh, come out to her, I guess. And, um, it, it was, it, didn't feel like there was enough time left and it in the way it was executed, it felt too rushed to me as well. I mean, it has to end that way with him pulling his trousers down and them living happily ever after or whatever, but it, it needed to be set up a little better. And I think it needed a little more time to be executed. You know, the ending did come quick, but I didn't feel like it was rushed i feel like it was the conclusion of the film they knew who each other were they they kissed and i i think i think that it um wrapped up i didn't think that it needed more and i after watching this i i wanted to watch um you've got mail and in the good old summertime so i watched you've got mail and it ends pretty quickly too i mean they're outside and walking and um and, and they kiss and, and she says, you know, I'd hoped it was you or so, I mean, it ended pretty quickly too. I think it, it wraps up, I, um, in the good old summertime, I didn't get a chance to watch it, but if I remember correctly, it, it ends quickly too, but then they show kind of a future scene with a, with a baby Liza Minnelli walking with, uh, Judy Garland and Van Johnson. If I remember correctly, I need to watch that. Well, <laughs> see, but. The comparison, and and it has been some time since I've seen You've Got Mail, but I've seen that about four or five times in my life. So I remember that film and that storyline more distinctly, is that in that film, Meg Ryan starts to fall in love with the Tom Hanks character, even though she doesn't know he's the guy in the email. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, like, you know, as you said, she says, I was hoping it was you in this film. She, you get, I, I don't really get a sense that she really cares for Krolik. She cares for the guy in the letters. And then when it happens to be Krolik, she just kind of accepts it. And well, she told him, she confessed to him before that, that she did find herself attracted to him. And that was why yeah, she but was it, horrible to him. Yeah. But I took that as kind of like, I, I'm just throwing you a bone. I didn't take that as real genuine. And, but even still it's right then and there. You know, you didn't have this buildup where I think in You've Got Mail, they have this, you see the love and the the attraction begin to grow between these two characters. It, and Tom they have Hanks, chemistry. Yes. And they have chemistry and you can see it and it makes the love story real and believable to me. Where in this, it's one, I never think they have chemistry, but two, it's her little confession of, oh, I've always felt that I was attracted to you comes right before he reveals who he is. And then they kiss and they live happily ever after where there's an element uh, to the Meg Ryan character. And this is possibly me reading into things where she she wants it to be Tom Hanks because that's who she loves. She's already fallen in love with that character 
and before she finds out he's the one writing the emails and she, you know, in this, in the, and this one is different. Novak loves the man who's writing the letters and, you know, doesn't fall in love with Kralik until she finds out he's the one writing the letters. And, and that's where I think it just, it feels rushed. And, and I agree with what comment Bobby and Matt were both saying, just extraordinarily rushed at the tail end of this film. And, you know, and, and I, and that's where I just don't believe the, the romance and it, it, and it, it rings hollow for me as far as the uh, uh, wrapping up the film. I saw her soften toward him and she, she had a lot of room to soften. Yeah. She had a lot of room to soften from the get go because she was so hard it, it, from the initial sequences in the film. And, and Meg Ryan is pretty harsh too. the one, one scenes, the two scenes that are very remarkably similar is both in you've got mail and in this film where Tom Hanks and the Crawler character meet her at the restaurant and almost trying to confess they're the ones who wrote the letter because they know she doesn't and she is just hostile to them and you see them crushed and each of them in both films leaves the restaurant essentially hollowed out but you know because of the, the harshness that the female characters use towards them. And that was very consistent in that. And probably one of the better scenes, both in you've got mail as well as um, the shop around the corner. But in speaking about that scene where, where he realizes who she is and she doesn't know it's him and, and they're cruel. The difference between the films though, is that the, the shop around the corner, Novak character doesn't give a softness after she leaves the the place. She goes right back to the office and is her same old, same old to Kralik until the very end when they're in the locker room together. There's really no softness to her. Whereas in You've Got Mail, as soon as Meg Ryan, and I think this is part of, I think, why You've Got Mail has such a softer touch to it is because we've seen these emails and read these emails along the way with both characters speaking to each other via email she immediately feels sad and and bad that she that she was that mean to him and she explains that to her to her virtual friend that of of the true remorse that she felt whereas the novak character in this film you never saw remorse at all uh from her towards the crawlite character and i think that that's part of why you got mail seems to be a little more charming than than this film all right films legacy nominated for no academy awards uh, AFI uh, in 2000, it was one of the 500 films nominated for the 100 Years 100 ha Laughs list, but ultimately did not make the top 100 list. In 2002, it was number 28 on the 100 Years 100 Passions list, which just goes to throw that in the face of me and Bobby and Matt, since we felt that there was no passion. Uh, it was placed on <laughs> Time Magazine's top 100 movies of all time list, it was ranked 202nd in the British Film Institute's 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the Greatest Films Ever Made. Uh, the work was also 58th on BBC's 2015 Poll of the Best American Films. Uh, itself is based off a Hungarian play that I'm going to say Illa Starzatar. Uh, <laughs> and the film was remade as a musical, as Laurie's already referenced, in 1949 called Good Old Summertime with Judy Garland and Van Johnson, and as a non-musical version in 1998 with You've Got Mail, 
with Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, also made into a Broadway musical, She Loves Me, in 1963, placed into the National Film Registry in the United States Film Library of Congress in 1999, and Rotten Tomatoes has it at 100% critics and 91% audience. And so that is the numbers on the shop around the corner. Uh, so what do you guys think of the legacy, and would you put it in your top 100? Bobby. Well, I've been critical enough of it. Uh, it's not in my top 100. It's it's a it's a fine film. It's it's definitely cute. I think that the legacy is a little bit uh, overrated uh, for what you're getting in the end, especially if it, if it's considered a love story. When in reality, after all we've been speaking about, that's the weakest part of the film, is the chemistry between the two characters. And ultimately, when the film was over, I can't believe that these two characters would have been happy in their life. I do very much appreciate the supporting cast of this. Is they're wonderful, uh, almost to a person, and I really, really enjoyed that part. I just feel that it was a, a fatal flaw to have your lead actress be as unlikable as she was, and I think that that's the that's the unfortunate part about this. And uh, as much as Lubish uh, made some some cute films, he's very much a dated. Uh, actor director and this is one of this is just one of his best and i think that's what they're trying to accomplish through it is is to to keep him in, uh remembered because this isn't a bad film this is a, a a fine film but as a christmas film no i can't see this and even though it's considered one but you know it, it is a fine film and i'll i'll leave it at that matt well i never saw you've got mail and i'm not sure i'll ever watch you've got mail I feel like my life is okay without that. But um, as for this movie, I thought it was delightful. Um, it's it's one of those movies I never would have watched, but for the podcast. So I'm I'm really grateful Lori nominated it. I really liked the the scene, the sets that they constructed. And I don't, I don't know if that was a an actual uh, location on the street, but it had a great feel to it. Um, it 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 was kind of a nice world into a different time and a different way of life. And it was just fun to watch. That said, it's it's not my top 100, but it was a delightful movie that uh, I, I'm glad I watched. All right. Well, uh, obviously, I've already telegraphed my punch multiple times. It's not my top 100. I, I I like the film. It's not a bad movie. It's just not. It's not nowhere near a top 100 for me. I'm a little perplexed by some of the legacies. You know, Time Magazine putting in the top 100 movies of all time. Yeah, it's uh, I, I that's uh, a real real stretch, and I know Lori, our friend, has done that too. But Lori also nominated Elf and The Hunger Games for the same list, so I, I qualify everything that she does. And also, also, um, you know, we we will not talk about the pedophile film. We won't discuss that. Much like Bruno, we don't talk about it. But but it, I, I like Jimmy Stewart. I don't like Maureen Sul or Margaret Sullivan. And I don't think they have any chemistry. I think You've Got Mail is a better version of this film. And Matt, I would suggest watching that because I actually like that uh, film. And I think Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan have a lot of tremendous ke uh, chemistry. And of course, Dabney Coleman, you know, that stalwart from the 80s is, is in it in a brief part. And uh, I really liked him in that film as well. But I would not put this in my top 100. I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed watching it again. But it's it's probably not one that I'll ever go out and purchase for myself, and I'd, I'd be, would be hard pressed to think that I'll come back and revisit again 
on purpose, maybe flipping through channels, catching it for a little bit, watch it again. But I don't think that I would go out to, you know, out of my way to watch it one more time. But this is Lori's pick. So we'll give her the final say. It is in my in my top 100. I I really love this film. I always have. I also love the the two remakes of it. And I love how this one is set in a in a shop and in a, you know, a um, retail shop. And then you've got Mayla set in a bookstore. And I love how that movie has all of the literary references. And then I love um, in the good old summertime is set in a music store. I think around the turn of the century when people would buy sheet music and someone would sing the song for them and play the music so they could hear it. And it's, I just, I I just think this is such a timeless plot and um, it is in my top 100 and yeah, (laughs) I think the legacy is appropriate. All right. Well, that does it for this month's review of The Shop Around the Corner. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little monthly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. Uh, As we stated before, you can follow us on Pinterest or Twitter at MHMemories. On either one of those social media outlets, you can keep yourself informed about occasional written film reviews and film summaries, news on upcoming theatrical releases and trailers, and information on many upcoming podcasts on the MHN Podcast Network. Additionally, don't forget to subscribe to our account on YouTube, uh, where we're releasing our podcasts exclusively, and also subscribe and check the notifications for Bobby's podcast, or podcast, I keep calling it a podcast, it's not a podcast, it's a, it's a video film review, uh, viewing and reviewing. Oh, I call it a podcast. Ah, all right, but it's you're, you're more sophisticated than us uh, audio-only type of people, but uh, make sure you subscribe to his account as well. Uh, he's uh, posting videos, three or four videos a month, uh, usually reviewing a lot of films. You don't have really a time era, but it seems to be a lot concentrated from the 70s and 80s. And 90s. Yeah, yeah. 90s. A, little, a couple here and there. But uh, always great film reviews. And I do like when you're making comparisons and recommendations for other films if you like that film. But give his podcast a try as well. And join us next month when we're back for a, another pick from me. And I'm nominating another Kevin Costner film, 1989's Field of Dreams. Until then, I'm Patrick. I'm Bobby. I'm Lori. Uh, and, and I'd like to pull my trousers up now. That was kind uh, of like a bad, that, that was a bad Jimmy. That was like bad. Jimmy and Arnold. <laughs> that was See, pedophile I, Jimmy. <laughs> See, I can't practice it while we're recording, so I, I've just got to spit it out. And yeah, that was that was yeah. Jimmy meets Arnold. Dad, could I pull my trousers <laughs> pull, pull up my now? Pull trousers up now. <laughs> pull them now. Do it. Actually, he was pulling them up. Do it. I'm you right here. Come he on. Down. Kill me! Oh, I was right saying <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right, and we'll see you all next time at our house. is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Movie House Memories, Hiding Your Reality, is provided courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech 
www.creativecommons.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHM Podcast Network, Movie House Memories, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.